All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutalai Shri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityamani Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Bhachani Nivasesa Sanyavani Paskatyade Satyamani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Parakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bhutam Samsachino Sarvoitam Sarvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravitam Shri Vishakam Bhutamscha Jaya Jaya Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda Jaya Jaya Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nichananda Jaya Jaya Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda So today is July 29th, 2018 in Ljubljana, Slovenia. And we're reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita Anjalila, chapter 15, text 8. So I had been told that I could pick whatever verse I want, and this is where I happen to be in my own reading. So, take that. In case you're wondering, why did I pick this? Just where I was. Ekabades pude prabhura krishnera panchagmana. Panchagune kare panchendriya akarshana. Ekabade. At one time. Spude. Manifest. Prabhura. Of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishnera. Of Lord Krishna. Panchaguna, five attributes. Panchagune, five attributes. Kare, do. Panchaindriya, of the five senses. Akarshana, attraction. 
Srila Prabhupada's verse and translation and purport. When Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu realized Lord Jagannath to be Krishna himself, Lord Chaitanya's five senses immediately became absorbed in attraction for the five attributes of Lord Krishna. Purport. Sri Krishna's beauty attracted the eyes of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna's singing and the vibration of his flute attracted the Lord's ears. The transcendental fragrance of Krishna's lotus feet attracted his nostrils. Krishna's transcendental sweetness attracted his tongue. And Krishna's bodily touch attracted the Lord's sensation of touch. Thus, each of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's five senses was attracted by one of the five attributes of Lord Krishna. Eka bade spure prabhura krishnera panchaguna panchagune kare panchendriya akarshana. When Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu realized Lord Jagannath to be Krishna himself, Lord Chaitanya's five senses immediately became absorbed in attraction for the five attributes of Lord Krishna. We have Akarshana, which is of course very much related to the word Krishna. So what was attracting Lord Chaitanya's eyes? Krishna's beauty. What was attracting Lord Chaitanya's ears? Krishna's singing and flute. What was attracting Lord Chaitanya's smell? The lotus feet. What was attracting uh, his taste? Sweetness. And what was attracting his touch? Lord Chaitanya's body. Generally, in this world, we uh, want to connect our senses with sense objects, isn't it? Uh, So here we see something a little different going on. So we are supposed to be relishing the Lord. Bhakti yoga is not about stopping enjoyment or stopping desires, but it is about desiring and enjoying in the proper way. Keval Anandakanda. This system is very blissful. It's very enjoyable. So what exactly are we supposed to enjoy? So the Lord reveals his five attributes, the devotee then relishes those five attributes. But this revealing and relishing is not exactly like we are accustomed to in the material body. Okay, let's look first at the Lord revealing. So the Lord revealing is very nicely explained in the Madhurya Kadambani of Vishrana Chakravati Thakur. And this is in the eighth shower with regards to prema. Uh, What happens when the devotee actually achieves prema? And this description very much corresponds to what happens when one achieves the last stage of meditation. So a nectar of instruction, 
Which verse is it described about the stages of meditation in the purport? Come on, this is the, one of the Shastra capitals of the ISKCON world, everybody. Everybody here reads, gets Bhakti Shastri and Bhakti Vaibhava and Bhakti Vedanta and Bhakti Sarvabhama. <laughs> that was a good guess, but sorry, what was that? Eight, thank you very much. So it's in the eighth. It's also very nicely explained by Bhakti Vinod Thakur in his commentary on the 11th verse of Manashiksha. It's also explained by him in Harinam Chintamani and Jayadharma. It's explained by Jiva Goswami. So there are five stages of meditation, and the middle stage has five subparts. So what's being described here is also what happens in the last stage of meditation. So this is again from Madhurya Kadambani, Eighth Shower of Nectar, by Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. The Lord first reveals his beauty, Sundarya, to the eyes of the utterly astonished devotee. The sweetness of his beauty makes all the senses and the mind become like eyes to see the Lord. So all the senses and the mind become like eyes. Just like we read that Krishna eats food by looking at it. Correct? Yes? So in our spiritual body we can also do that. Did you know that? In our spiritual bodies, our senses are also interchangeable. You know that some people in this material body, even now on the earth, have something called synesthesia. Have you ever heard of this? It's a particular medical condition, but the people who have it like it. They don't want to be cured. And it's where at least some of their senses are interchangeable. So some of them can taste music or see music or they can hear, taste. They have some... They can taste food, but they may also be able to hear it. So there's some sort of interchangeability of their senses. It's called synesthesia. As I said, the people who have it, they like it. They don't want to be fixed. They don't want to be normal. So this exists... Uh, totally in the spiritual body. So when the Lord reveals his beauty to the devotee, all of the senses become like eyes to see the beauty of the Lord. Going on from Madhuri Kadamani. The resulting symptoms of ecstatic love, such as tears, shivering, and being stunned, cause the devotee to swoon in ecstasy. To revive him, the Lord next reveals his fragrance, Sorabdha, to the nostrils of the devotee, and all the devotee's senses and mind take on the quality of the nose to smell. As a devotee starts to swoon a second time, the Lord says, O oh my devotee, I am fully under your control. Please don't be disturbed. Just realize me to your full satisfaction. The Lord thus discloses his pleasing voice, Sosavarya, to the ear of the devotee, and as before, all the senses become like ears to hear. As the devotee swoons a third time, 
the Lord mercifully gives him the touch of his lotus feet or his hands or his chest, revealing the delicate softness, so kamariya, according to the different rasas of the devotees. To those in the mood of servitude, dasya, he touches his lotus feet to their heads. To those in the mood of friendship, sakya, he grasps their hands with his. For those in the mood of parental affection, he gives the touch of his hands by wiping away their tears. For those in conjugal mood, he awards his tender softness by embracing them to his heart with his long arms. Again, the devotee's senses all take on the sense of touch to feel his softness. At the start of the fourth swoon, the Lord restores him by giving his fifth madhurya the taste of the nectar of his lips, sorasya. But this he reveals only to those who at this time are in the mood of conjugal love and desire this, but not to others. The devotee's senses all take on the sense of taste and he faints for a fifth time. This blissful swoon is so deep the Lord can revive him only by bestowing his sixth quality, Odarya, generosity. Odarya refers to the state where all the Lord's qualities, beauty, fragrance, sound, touch, and taste, forcibly manifest all at one time to his devotees' various senses. Then Prema, understanding the mind of the Lord, increases to the utmost, and with it the keen hankering of the devotee. Prema becomes like a powerful moon in the heart of the devotee, presiding over the ocean of bliss and creating hundreds of waves. It causes an almost destructive friction in the devotee's heart among the competing tastes. At the same time as the presiding deity in the mind, the moon of Prema expands its power and allows the devotee to relish all the different tastes at the same time without conflict. One should not think that due to the lack of single-mindedness, the devotee will be unable to relish the fullness of all the various tastes. Rather, the senses attaining the extraordinary, inconceivable, wonderful capacity to do all the functions of all the other senses, even more fully savor the madhurya of the Lord's beauty, pleasant voice, and all other qualities. Seeing the devotee yearning to relish the sundarya and other sweet qualities of the Lord all at once, but helpless like a chataka bird trying to catch every raindrop at once in his beak, the Lord considers, oh, why am I keeping so many wonderful qualities to myself? <coughs> to let the devotee partake of them all, the Lord manifests his seventh madhurya, karuna, compassion. The superintendent of all the Lord shaktis, she reigns as a supreme empress in the middle of a lotus on whose eight surrounding petals are the eight shaktis. This karuna, also known as anugraha, kindness or favor, manifests itself in the lotus eyes of the Lord. 
to his devotees in the mood of the servant, it is known as Pipa Shakti, to his other devotees as, as Vatsalya or sometimes Karuna. When it appears in relation to the devotees in conjugal mood, it is known as Chitta Vidarini Akarshini Shakti, that melts the heart of Krishna and attracts him. Thus it is known by many names according to the different moods of the devotees. By this Pipa Shakti, the Lord's all-pervading free will or Icha Shakti, influences the heart and causes great astonishment even in those realized souls who are fully self-satisfied Admarama. This Kripa Shakti invites one quality called Bhaktivatsalya, affection for his devotees, to rule as emperor over all the Lord's auspicious spiritual qualities. To completely relish the beauty and other qualities revealed by the Lord, the enlightened devotee savors them over and over again. Most astonishingly, their sweetness increases more and more, and the devotee ascends to higher and higher peaks of experiences. Then, continually realizing the unheard of sweetness of the Lord's Bhaktivatsalya, his heart begins to melt. The Lord, showing his kind nature, says, Oh, my best devotee, many births you have given up, wife, house, and wealth to attain me. For the sake of my service, you endured untold miseries, such as cold wind, hunger, thirst, and pain. I have simply become your debtor. Rulership over the whole earth, lordship over the heavens, and mystic powers are unsuitable for you. No, no, grass and straw, the delight of cows, I cannot give to a man. Though I am unconquerable, today I've certainly been conquered by you. Now I am taking shelter of the creeper of your excellent character and gentle conduct. So Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur writes, that was also by Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur, in his commentary on uh, the Chatur Shlok in the Bhagavatam, which is 2935, which is also given in the Adi Lila 156. So in, in Vishnu Chakravati's purport, this is where, uh, we should read the English at least of this verse. This is Obrama. Please know that the universal elements enter into the cosmos and at the same time do not enter into the cosmos. Similarly, I myself also exist within everything created and at the same time, I am outside of everything. So that is the verse, that is 2935, which is also in Adi 156 of the essential verses of the Bhagavatam. So Vishwana Chakravati Thakur uh, says in his commentary on this verse, The entrance of the elements into the living beings is without attachment, since the elements are not conscious. Like the ether, although I am conscious, like a man who lives in his house without attachment, I remain without attachment while entering, regulating, and projecting all beings. My pastimes are also without attachment in relation to the elements and the living beings within the material world. But I desire to show myself to my obedient devotees who have entered my heart, who have perfected themselves and bowed to me, Remaining separate, not entering their heart, I desire to offer my beauty to their eyes. I desire that my fragrance enters their nostrils 
and desire to fill their ears with the nectar of my sweet voice, speaking with them and answering them. I desire to make their limbs experience the sweet softness of my body by touching and embracing them. Thus situated inside my devotees and externally as well, I perform pastimes with great attachment for my pure devotees beyond the gunas who I cannot give up. So that's a little understanding of the fact that the Lord wants to reveal all these qualities to his devotee. He's desiring this. The Lord is willingly desiring for his devotee to relish all of these qualities. So in today's verse we have how Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is relishing these qualities. I wanted to give a couple other examples from Krishna book. So in this one, this is when Krishna and Balaram have entered Mathura. The citizens of Mathura city who saw Krishna, the supreme personality of Godhead, became very much pleased and began to look on his face with insatiable glances as if they were drinking the nectar of heaven. Seeing Krishna gave them so much pleasure that it appeared as if they were not only drinking the nectar of seeing his face, but were also smelling the aroma and licking up the taste of his body and were embracing him and Balaram with their arms. They began to talk among themselves about the two transcendental brothers. For a long time they had heard of the beauty and activities of Krishna and Balaram, but now they were personally seeing them. Next is from chapter 73. Uh, this is the kings that were imprisoned by Jarasandhar and their response when they first saw Krishna. <coughs> so it describes, describes the form of the Lord. Then after so much distress, when the kings and princes saw Lord Krishna with his beautiful transcendental features, They looked upon him to their heart's content as if drinking nectar through their eyes, licking his body with their tongues, smelling the aroma of his body with their noses, and embracing him with their arms. So this is a a very common uh, description of how the devotees are relishing the Lord. So we find here the Lord is giving himself all his qualities, his beauty, his fragrance, his sweetness, sweet taste, his touch, the sound of his voice, uh, his love to the devotee, and he wants to give that to the devotee. And the devotees, in turn, they are relishing the Lord with each of their senses, so much so that all of their senses are relishing the activities of all of the other senses. So it may seem to us as conditioned souls that this is not so desirable because we are always told that we are supposed to not be enjoying the gratification of our senses. From the very beginning, 
of our introduction to Krishna consciousness, we are told to give up sense gratification. It's one of Srila Prabhupada's most often used terms, to give up sense gratification. But here we see that the devotees are indeed engaging in sense gratification. In fact, they are engaging in sense gratification to a degree and extent and quality that is beyond anything that we can imagine on this planet in Kali Yuga or even on the planets of the demigods where, you know, on this planet in Satya Yuga people have much more sense enjoyment and Indra has a thousand times more sense enjoyment than is available here in Satya Yuga Lord Brahma many millions of times more than that when Gopal Kumar was traveling through the universe as explained by Sanatana Goswami when he came to the final covering of the universe, he found very subtle beings who were enjoying the subtle forms of material sense gratification, which were millions and millions of times greater than that which Lord Brahma can experience. But yet, the devotees we have been reading about, starting with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is in the mood of a devotee, are unlimitedly greater than anything that's enjoyed on the subtle or gross platform within this material world. One of the amazing things about bhakti yoga is that we don't try to stop attachment or enjoyment, but we try to substitute the real form uh, or to transform our current mistaken attachment and enjoyment to the real attachment and enjoyment. So, on the condition, in the conditioned state, we try to become happy by connecting our senses to their corresponding object. And each of us has a particular type of corresponding object that pleases us. Right? Not everybody is attracted by the same kind of sights. Isn't that a fact? Right? Sometimes devotees have asked me to help them find a suitable marriage partner. And when I ask them, what are you looking for? You know, like the man may say, well, the girl has to be pretty. I say, well, what do you mean by pretty? What do you mean? Everybody has a different idea. You know, somebody says, I want someone who's very skinny. And someone says, I want someone who's a little chubby. People have different ideas. And what's attractive, it's true, isn't it? What one person finds attractive, another person finds unattractive. What to speak of between the species, you know, the, the warthogs are finding each other very attractive and we're looking at them and thinking uh, they are really ugly. So we have different sense objects. We like different kinds of food. You know, sometimes, like, like I don't like whole buckwheat. I don't mind buckwheat flour, but the whole buckwheat, I just, I can't even tolerate the smell. I just, like, I, I can't stand it. But some people must like it because... People eat it. And I'm always astonished, you know, how can anybody tolerate this? Or I don't like things that are very spicy, you know. And people who come from the tropical countries where they grow very spicy food, you know, very spicy peppers, and they eat very spicy food. If I say to them, please make me something without chilies, they say, then how will you enjoy it? They say that. They say it has no taste. Like, no, it has lots of taste. So there's things that we eat, or I like bitter melon, you know? Other people, they're like, well, how can you possibly like bitter melon? 
Or like, I like tomatoes. I know people who don't like tomatoes. One friend of mine, she doesn't like tomatoes. Don't give me any tomatoes. I don't like it. She says, I like tomato sauce, but I don't like the pieces of tomatoes. Everybody has their own thing and certain fragrances. There's some kind of oil that in many temples they offer to the deities. I don't know what it's called, but I just hate it. When, you know, when they put it on my hands, I'm like, okay, I'll smell it out of, out of you know, duty. smell off. I don't know what it is, some kind of oil. And I just don't like it, but somebody else likes it. This is the definition of personality, right? We have different tastes. So materially, we're thinking, if I can see something pleasing to me, if I can hear something, and, and hearing, I was at the... Woodstock in Poland one time we were taking around the Rathiatra and these guys were listening to something that I assume they consider to be music. It sounded to me like animals growling. I just thought it sounds like some kind of, you know, not even a normal animal. You know, it sounded like some kind of monster from the depths of the universe. How can anybody, by any calculation, say that this is music? I mean, not only was it noise, it wasn't, but it, it, was, it wasn't even, it was, ugh. I just couldn't even fathom it, you know. But they're liking it, and they were, yeah, they were dancing. And probably if they listened to the music I like, they would say, horrible. You know. When we were with Prabhupada in uh, 1975, Prabhupada was at the New York airport, and um, in those days in the airports, oh, those days everywhere, people would smoke everywhere. Smoking was not restricted. So people were smoking in the airport, and you know, after people get to the end of their cigarette, they often just throw it on the ground. So everywhere in the airport, there's little cigarette butts, we call them in English, the end of the cigarette. And in those days also in the airports, there was no security. I mean, there was no security at all. You could go onto the plane, even if you weren't a passenger, and help, help the passenger get happy, and then you, you leave. Like you can do now with a train, right? You can help carry somebody's luggage onto a train, and then they are the passenger, and you go off. So when Prabhupada went into the airport, uh, he went to the VIP lounge, but it was under construction. So we were the only ones there. Prabhupada was sitting on a couch. There were, I don't know, not very many of us, 15 or 20 people. And the devotees had brought big bags. Imagine big rubbish bags, like a really, really big, big bag full of flower petals. Huge. Huge bag. And when Prabhupada had entered the airport, the devotees got there first with the flowers, and they were throwing the flowers. So there was a whole path of flowers from the door of the airport to where Prabhupada was sitting on the couch in the VIP lounge. So I'm not going to tell you the whole story of that time, just a little piece of it. So at one point, Srila Prabhupada noticed that one of the airport officials 
was speaking to the GBC, to our GBC person, and he couldn't hear them, but you know, you can see when somebody's disturbed, right? You know, the gestures and the airport official was obviously disturbed. And Srila Prabhupada said, what is the problem? And they said, Srila Prabhupada, they're complaining about the flowers. They want us to clean up the flowers. Now, at that time in ISKCON, we weren't very concerned with public relations. We didn't have an ISKCON communications ministry. Uh, we really didn't care what anybody thought of us at all, which had its good sides, but it had its bad sides as well. We are who we are, and you can like us or not like us, and you're all hogs, dogs, camels, and asses anyway. Uh, that was kind of the mood. Uh, so, one of the devotees, I think it was Jayadwaita, who was a brahmachari at the time, uh, but Mahamaya remembers this a little differently than I remember it, so anyway, if you read her book, she tells it a little differently. Uh, but I remember Jayadwaita saying, uh, Prabhupada, they're not complaining about the cigarettes. Everybody is throwing their cigarettes all over. And that, they're not asking them to clean it up, but they're asking us to clean up the flowers. So Srila Prabhupada told a story of how his godbrothers were preaching in Burma. And when they would be cooking with ghee, so I know in many of our temples we don't cook with ghee very much anymore. Uh, people have beds and they use oil. In the old days of Iskand, we slept in the floor and we used ghee. So, but if you're around someplace where people are cooking with ghee, it has a very nice smell, yes? Have you all smelled the smell of people cooking with good, nice ghee? He said, so the local people, they would complain about the smell of the ghee. And they had their own favorite national drink. It was liquid dog. And they would, when a dog died, they would bury it underground and put some chemicals so the body became like liquid and then they would drink this. So we have different tastes. By the way, I don't think we cleaned up the flower beds. So we have different tastes. Some people like cigarettes, some people like flowers, some people like geese, some people like liquid dog. And we are thinking, you know, our enjoyment is I'm going to connect my senses with my preferred sense object, and when I can do that, I am happy. Now, the key word here is object. First of all, this body and mind is a machine. It is, uh, it is alive in the sense that the cells are alive. Uh, but it is a machine, yantra rudrani maya. And we are simply connecting our machine with some other machine. And we are enjoying, the pleasure we are enjoying is by our uh, false illusory attachment. Uh, just like you know that we can enjoy sense objects in dreams, yes? Everybody has enjoyed sense objects in dreams? Yes. I, I often tell this story how one time on a day when I was fasting, I took a little rest. And in my dream, I was eating. I was doing a near-jaw fast. In my dream, I was drinking water. And I drank, you know, one cup of water in my dream and then another cup of water in my dream and another cup of water in my dream. And finally in my dream, I took a great big jug of water, you know, <laughs> like four or five liter jug, and I was drinking the whole jug. And then in my dream, I thought, something is not right. 
And then I woke up and I realized I was drinking dream water. And so I was still thirsty. So all of our connecting our senses to our sense object on either a subtle platform or a gross platform, none of it is touching the soul. That is why gratification of our senses in this world is not satisfying. There's other reasons why it's not satisfying. It's temporary, it's limited, it gets boring, right? Even if you take your favorite sense object, whatever that is, you know, you like to eat pizza or you like to hear Mozart or whatever, you like to see beautiful sunsets, whatever it may be. If you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, you know, you have pizza for breakfast and pizza for lunch and pizza for dinner and pizza for breakfast and pizza for lunch and pizza for dinner and pizza for breakfast, you become bored. And if you keep doing it, you actually become disgusted. Like I read about a man who worked in an ice cream shop and one of the benefits was he could eat as much ice cream as he wanted. And after a while, he became actually nauseated after working in that shop for the summer he was, it was an article I read a long time ago he said the rest of his life he could not eat ice cream he had so much uh, overindulged but the main reason that sense gratification is not enjoyable it, it's limited it's temporary it gets boring we get disgusted but th- that's all there But that's not the main reason. The main reason is that we're not enjoying it. I, the soul, am not experiencing it, actually. My waking sense gratification and my dreaming sense gratification are both illusory. Simply some molecules and atoms are interacting with each other and I am observing. And Krishna says this in the 5th chapter and in the 13th chapter of the Gita. We are not doing anything. We're just observing. And you can say, but I do experience something that is an illusion. Exactly like in the dream. I remember I was eating pakoras. I was eating cauliflower pakoras in that dream. But I, I was tasting it. Where is the taste coming from then? It's coming from the mind, isn't it? If I experience the taste of cauliflower pakoras by eating them in a dream, that taste sensation must be happening in the mind. And in fact, if there's a block between the senses and the brain, right? Like I know one devotee who was born unable to smell there's a block so you can put a flower next to you doesn't smell anything and some people are blind because there's a problem with the eyes some people are blind because there's a problem in the connection between the eyes to the brain so the light may still be going in the retina and the cones and rods are getting the light but the signal's not going yes so what's actually happening is happening in the mind It's some manipulation of the mind. And that is why a person can be watching a movie or reading a book about somebody else gratifying their senses and they almost experience it. The person in the book, the person in the film, 
they find the beautiful girl, the handsome man, and you're reading or you're watching and you feel happy. Why? It's just an actor. Maybe he doesn't even, maybe the man actor and the woman actor actually hate each other. Sometimes it's like that. They're just actors. And if you're watching a film, the actors are not even there. You're just looking at some lights. If you're reading a book, you're just looking at some little pieces of ink. But we are experiencing, oh. Right? Or there's some battle and the good guys are winning or maybe the bad guys are winning. And we become excited and we become afraid. Yes? As if it's actually happening. It's not happening. There's no battle. There's no battle at all. It's just actors. Or it's just not even the actors are there. It's just lights or it's just ink. But in the mind, we identify. And also the mood is all exploitive. The mood is everything exists for me to enjoy. And in this mood of sense gratification, we even see other living beings as objects. I don't remember where I read it from, but that materialistic person sees all other people as either tools or fools. Either you are a means for me to get what I want, or I have no use for you. And this is how we deal with the world. I mean, in extreme forms is something like meat-eating. That's very extreme, where somebody sees the animal as just an object. The animal exists for me to eat. The animal doesn't think it exists for me to eat. But I'm seeing them as an object. And we do this, I'm sorry to say, with other people as well. This person is is an object. I have some thirst and this person is like water to quench my thirst. And that is true whether we want to enjoy somebody sexually, whether we want to enjoy somebody's money, whether we want to enjoy the uh, facilities somebody else can give for us by their reputation, by their power. And even as devotees, I'm sorry to say, we often deal with people like this. We think, oh, there's a more advanced devotee. Let me suck their shakti. And therefore, Prabhupada would say, you know, you shouldn't allow just anyone to touch my feet. Because that's the mood. You know, oh, here's a saintly person. Not how may I serve you, but please bless me, bless me, bless me, give me blessings, give me blessings, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And this is generally how we deal with the world. So this, of course, is lust. That is the definition of lust. I want my happiness at your expense. Now, if we're civilized, we're trained by our parents and by our society that we don't just steal. I want to enjoy everyone and everything, but I don't just take it. I'm taught by society. No, no, that's not good. You have to have an exchange. It has to be a voluntary exchange. There has to be consent. 
I go to the store and they say, I want to sell you this thing, and I say, I want to buy it, and I pay the proper price, and then I can take it and enjoy it. And with all of our relationships with objects, with other living beings, we agree to have an exchange. I will give you something for your sense pleasure, and you will give me something for my sense pleasure. And of course, our mood is, let me take a little more than I give. Everybody likes a sale, yeah? Nobody complains. If you, the shop says, we are having a sale, you don't say, oh, are you losing money on this item? You know, look, I'll, I'll pay the full price. Who says like this? Oh, great. I got a sale. I got it cheap. So we're always calculating. How can I get a little more than what I'm giving? And you can understand why that doesn't work very well. It, it, it's this exploitive mentality that is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why people suffer in their relationships in conditioned life. That each person is thinking, what can I get? They are giving to get, and they are trying to give a little bit less than what they get. And if all the parties involved are trying to give a little bit less than what they get, uh, you can understand why there will be conflict. So the center here is me, and the center is a false me. Everything about it is false. I make myself the center, which is false. Am I the center? No. Can each each of us say, am I the center of my family? No. Will everybody in the family agree that I am the center of my family? No. Is my family the center of my community? No. Is my community the center of the Libyana? Is Libyana the center of the world? Sorry, folks. <laughs> is the world the center of the solar system? Is the solar system the center of the galaxy? Is the galaxy the center of the universe? Is this universe the center of reality? No, 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 no. I guess I'm not the center. So if I think that I'm the center, that everything is meant to please me, that is false. If I think me is the body and mind, that is false. If I think everybody exists, all other people and animals and objects and everything and plants exist to serve me, that is false. If I think enjoyment is going to come through a mercantile exchange, that is false. And I the soul and not even the body and the mind. None of this is really happening to me at all. It's just a dream. So we may take this illusory, false, dreamlike idea of sense gratification and try to put that on Krishna. Okay, I will enjoy Krishna the way, same way that I enjoy flowers and animals and people and clothing and, and everything and music and, and in this world. And in the beginning, that's exactly what we do. We enjoy Krishna the way we enjoy everything else, from a false platform, a platform of false identity, in the mood that I am the center, in the mood that I am the enjoyer. And Krishna actually doesn't mind that in the beginning. 
He's so happy that we're going to him in any way at all. In any way at all. He's just so happy that we're going to him. That he really doesn't care if we're going to him in an exploitive, selfish way. It just doesn't matter to him in the beginning. Just like Prabhupada tells the story of this man who was a thief and he heard in a Bhagavatam class that Krishna wears very valuable jewels and that he lives in Vrindavan. So he went to Vrindavan looking for Krishna to steal his jewels. And he was so eager to see Krishna that Krishna appeared before him as a little boy. And he said, oh, what do you want? And the thief said, I come here to take your jewels. And Krishna, the little boy, said, oh, Mother Yasoda will be very angry. My mother and my, my daddy, they'll be very angry if I give you my jewels. But he showed himself to this thief because he was so eager. And the thief that fell in love with him and attained prema. Actually, there's a similar story about one devotee in Iskand, one of Prabhupada's disciples, Haridas. Haridas grew up on the streets in Mumbai. He never knew his parents. And he lived by stealing. He was homeless. He was always getting arrested. Every time he got arrested, he would give the police another name. He didn't even know his name. And one time in the prison, he saw Back to Godhead, and in the back was a picture of Prabhupada, and Prabhupada was wearing an expensive watch. And he thought, when I get out of prison, I'm going to find this man and steal his watch. So when he got out of prison, he found the devotees who were at the beginning stages of the... I heard this directly from Haridas at the 20th anniversary of the opening of the Juhu Temple in Juhu. So he went there. It was a very run-down place for the Western devotees. It was terrible. It was full of rats. You know, they very hard to get clean water. Most of the devotees were sick. For them, it was just a terrible situation. But for him, it was wonderful because it was a building. You know, he's used to living out in the streets. It was a building. There was food. And so for him, it was, it was a big step up. I don't have time to tell you the whole story about Haridas. A wonderful, wonderful story. And, uh, you know, he was doing service at the temple, and they would uh, send him out to buy boga for the deities. So he would buy boga, but he would also steal boga because he was accustomed you know, to stealing. He said it took him about two years to give up his, his stealing habit. And uh, he would also steal things for himself. So he would steal for the deities, and he would also steal things for himself. Anyway, he really wanted to meet Prabhupada. That was why he came. He wanted to meet, but Prabhupada wasn't there. And he heard that Prabhupada was going to be in a nearby temple. And so he asked the temple president, I want to go see Prabhupada. He, he was doing a lot of work, so the temple president wasn't so eager to let him go. He said, look, I'll just go meet him and come back. I won't stay. He said, okay. So they gave him a train ticket. So he went to where Prabhupada was. You know, at that time the movement was very small and it was easy, easier for the devotees to see Prabhupada. So he went to where Prabhupada was and he went to Prabhupada's room and he went in, offered his obeisances and Prabhupada said, oh, who are you? He said, well, I've come from Juhu. And Prabhupada said, why have you come? And he said, well, Prabhupada, actually I've come because I want your watch. <laughs> and Prabhupada took off his watch and handed it to him. He said, here, and then he said, no, actually, I don't want it anymore. You keep it. And Prabhupada said, why don't you stay here? And he said, no, I promised my temple president I would go back right away. He said, okay, let me go back. 
Another time when Prabhupada was visiting, uh, Haridev had, he had stolen some chocolate candy when he was out shopping for the deities. And he had put it in his bead bag. And when he offered obeisances by Prabhupada, it fell out. And Prabhupada said, what is this? And he's looking at it. And he said, we don't eat this. He said, why are you eating this? He said, Prabhupada, I wanted something sweet. I said, okay, you come with me. And Prabhupada took him to the kitchen and cooked halva for him. Personally cooked halva for him. So after he was about two years a devotee, uh, he was, uh, Prabhupada was initiating devotees and he was in the kitchen. I mean, there's more, I, I can't tell you the whole story. Anyway, he was in the kitchen washing the pots. You know, when you're washing the big pots, you get covered with black from the pots. So he was really dirty. And he said to the head of the kitchen, what's Prabhupada doing? I want to go see what Prabhupada's doing. He said, no, no, you stay here and wash the pots. He said, no, I want to see what Prabhupada's doing. You stay here and wash the pots. He said, please, just five minutes. Can I go see what Prabhupada's doing? All right, five minutes, then you have to come back. So he goes in the temple room, and he's all dirty, you know. And he's, he's at the door of the temple room. And Prabhupada sees him, and he calls him. And he asks him to sit down at the yagya. And Prabhupada calls him up to initiate him. And he asks him, you know, what are the four rules? <laughs> and then Prabhupada says, and what is your name? And he said, Prabhupada, I don't know what my name is. He said, but the, de- said, the devotees here, I think it was Vishaka, he said, she calls me Haridas. Prabhupada said, okay, your name can be Haridas. Prabhupada says, where are your beads? He said, oh, Prabhupada, I was in the kitchen. I left them in the kitchen. Prabhupada took his own beads and gave them to him. So Krishna doesn't mind in the beginning if we come with an exploitive mentality. If in the beginning we think, I'm going to enjoy Krishna, I'm going to enjoy the devotees the same way I have enjoyed and exploited everything in this world. Krishna doesn't mind. He's so happy we have come. But eventually we should come to the point where we want to enjoy Krishna on a different platform. We were reading in the beginning how Krishna wants to give himself to the devotee. Now, aren't we also like that? Don't we want people to enjoy our company, not in an exploitive way, but in a loving way? Don't we? Yes? If someone comes to visit me and they don't like to be with me, they don't want to spend time with me, I don't like that. If you've come to visit, then visit with me. Be with me. I remember I was talking to a devotee once. Her mother had come to visit and her mother wanted to go to some tourist place. And she said, I don't want to go. But I have to go. I said, what do you mean you have to go? I said, why are you going? Well, to be with my mother. Do you want to be with your mother? Yes, I want to be with her. Do you want to make your mother happy? Yes, I want to make my mother happy. I said, so you do want to go. You don't want to see the particular place, but you want to be with your mother. So go on that basis. Krishna wants us to want to be with him. He wants us to appreciate him. We want people to appreciate us, yes? Yes? We want people to think that we are attractive. 
We all want people, everybody wants other people to think they are attractive. At least somebody wants somebody to think we're attractive. If only your dog thinks you're attractive, at least somebody thinks I'm attractive. That's why people keep dogs, you know that, yeah? So they come home and the dog, oh! The dog is jumping on them and licking them and kissing them. Yes? We want somebody to find us attractive. We want somebody to be interested in what we have to say. We want someone to think we smell nice even. Isn't it? If people go, oh, you know, if you really think... We want people to enjoy us in love. We don't want people to enjoy us exploitively. We don't want to be exploited. But we want people to enjoy us. So Krishna is also like that. Prabhupada says in the story of Jambavan that you can understand that Krishna has all the inclinations of any human being. So Krishna wants to be lovingly enjoyed by the devotee. He desires that. But it should be with love to make Krishna happy, not to use him. Not, oh, now I found a better sense object. Now I found a more beautiful, more fragrant, more soft, more merciful sense object that I can exploit. Starting like that is all right. But we should come to the point that we relish Krishna to make him happy. Krishna is trying to make us happy. Krishna is thinking, oh, let me make the devotee happy. Like we were reading. Krishna says, you've sacrificed so much for me. Let me give you myself to enjoy. So we, we need to give ourselves permission to relish Krishna. Don't be afraid. And if we don't relish Krishna, we will try to enjoy it falsely. Anandamaya Biasat, we are not capable of saying, I'm not going to try to enjoy anything. Even the impersonalists want to enjoy the Brahman. Or the uh, voidists, they want to enjoy freedom. We are, we are also enjoyers. We are meant to enjoy Krishna, but in reality, we, the soul, we, the soul, to enjoy Krishna in love in a reciprocal relationship with love. And that is actually the perfection of life. And how wonderful Bhakti Yoga is that we take our natural desire to enjoy and we turn it to Krishna. And even though when we first turn it to Krishna, it's still ugly and nasty, because we've turned it to Krishna, it becomes purified. And gradually, 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 our relishing of Krishna becomes more and more and more pure. And as it does, he reveals himself to us more and more. And finally, he reveals himself to us completely and we relish him completely in a way that's never boring and never disgusting and never old and is actually real. So I've gone way over time. I have no time for questions and comments. I am very sorry. Chaitanya Chaitanya Ki Jai. Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ecstasies of relishing his own self as Krishna Ki Jai. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai. Yeah.